0: Welcome to Real Estate Pro Tips and Strategies. The theme is how to buy a home or sell a home in a changing real estate market. Hi, my name is Pete Sabine and I'm here with my team partner, Leslie Whitney. We are real estate professionals with Compass and the Five Star Real Estate team here in the San Francisco Bay Area. We wanna share with you our real estate expertise to give you a competitive edge and provide insight with useful information so you can make an informed decision for your next home purchase. Leslie and I break down the most important aspects of real estate. Future podcasts will reveal how to navigate as a home buyer or seller. Let's begin our podcast.
1: Hello and welcome back. Let us begin this episode about how to prepare your purchase offer to win. Here's what we'll cover on this episode. What you must do before you submit your offer, we'll talk about purchase offer terms, how to form an offer price strategy, how to draft your cover letter, what you must include with your purchase offer, how to win a multiple offer competition and what to do if your offer is not accepted. A lot of things we're gonna cover but these are all really important. So Pete, here's an example. You've been showing homes to your clients and now you have found the perfect match for them. What are some tips and strategies you can share with us to prepare a purchase offer for them?
0: Well, one of the things I recommend to do, if you can do this, is get to know the seller before you make an offer. And why is that? Because if you can do this, you want to make the purchase experience personal. The seller is transferring their cherished home to you. And if you can make that bond with them before you submit the offer, people like to do business with people they know, like, and trust. So... That's not easily done at the moment because we have restrictions with COVID and showing and things like that. Um, But if you have the opportunity, try to schedule a viewing when the owner is home to meet the owner. If that isn't possible, the next best thing is to meet the seller's realtor. Try to visit the home when the listing agent is available to be there as well. And why is that? because the listing agent can provide really valuable insight about the home that may not be readily apparent to you in walking through the home or even reading through the seller's disclosures or property inspection reports. And also, if the listing agent has a good impression of you, if you decide to make an offer on the home, even if you haven't met the seller, the listing agent can convey that to the seller
1: yeah in fact, I have a really good example of um I had some buyers who happened to meet the listing agent at the property. He was there showing us the home, and they really made a connection and he told me later this listing agent told me that it was really important that he had met the buyers and he trusted the buyers and and felt that they would be a good fit for this house, so he really went to bat for them and and that's an example of how it all worked out really well that they met each other. Obviously, you have to take into consideration personalities and whatnot, because not everybody's going to have a good outcome. Right. But generally, um, it's, it's a good way to personalize the transaction a little bit more.
0: Well, and that is something to talk about as well, because the way that we deliver offers for review and consideration has become very impersonal. And when everything melted down about 10 years ago, um, there were a lot of bank-owned foreclosures and short-sale distressed properties on the market. And what would happen is the banks would say, hey, just fax or email your offer, and we'll get back to you. Before that, we used to meet in person with the listing agent to present the offer. And if possible, we would meet with the seller and their agent. And in many cases, the buyer may not be in the same room when the offer is being presented, but they were close by, either in the lobby of the realtor's office or waiting outside in the car for a decision to be made. But the point is, is that it was a personal meeting and we could make rapport and build confidence because of that connection. Once everything went impersonal and went digital, that has become lost. So if there's a way to put that back into the dynamic of getting your offer accepted, it's really valuable.
1: Right. Because usually the seller and the buyers never, ever see each other at all in person or in in any way during a transaction. So that's really changed these days. Um, So what are some key things to discover about the seller circumstances and goals that could help uh, with your offer?
0: Well, the hallmark of successful negotiations is to find out what is most important to the other party and then you draft your offer terms accordingly for a win-win transaction. So ask your realtor to contact the seller's realtor to find out about the seller's circumstances and the key terms that are most important to the seller and try to include those with your purchase offer if they're a good match for you. So what are some of those things? one key thing to ask is has the seller found another property and why is that important because if the seller hasn't found another property yet there's a lot of uncertainty going on in their circumstances and they might value a longer closing period and possibly even having the option to stay in the home past the closing date renting back the home from the current buyer ask the seller Do they have any inspection reports or property disclosures? It's really important for you to understand that because there could be some valuable information about the condition of the property that you could discover in reading that information. The other thing that's really important to understand is, is the seller looking for an as-is sale or are they willing to complete repairs that are recommended in inspection reports? Those are some of the key things. Another one that it's often overlooked is finding out if it's a trust sale or a probate sale because if it's either one of those, there are additional considerations that you have to be aware of in getting into a transaction, especially if it's a probate sale.
1: Okay, and so what are some things that go into a purchase agreement? What are some items that you have to be considered? Well,
0: to understand what a purchase agreement really is, It's basically a written promise to perform between a buyer and a seller. In other words, the seller promises to sell you the home based on your ability to complete the promises you made to the seller, which is to get through the transaction with all the contingencies satisfied and anything that the buyer must do to complete the sale. In order for a purchase agreement to be valid, there must be what's called consideration. And consideration is most commonly in the form of a good faith deposit. And that deposit is put into the escrow account after the offer is accepted. Without consideration, the purchase agreement is not valid. So the consideration is a key part of that. The purchase agreement is ratified when all parties have executed or signed the purchase agreement. Your deposit is usually refundable until the last contract contingency has been removed by the buyer. When all parties have performed as agreed, then the buyer and seller tell the title company to transfer the title to the new owner, and then the sale has been completed.
1: And so how much is this earnest money deposit, and how is it connected to the liquidated damages option?
0: Well, the deposits are typically... Uh, a minimum of 1% of the purchase price. So if it's a $500,000 purchase price, the minimum deposit is typically $5,000. You can increase your deposit to a larger amount at some point in the transaction, and that's typically when the buyer has removed all of the remaining contingencies. At that point, the deposit could go from 1% of the price up to 3% or higher. If your purchase agreement has a liquidated damages provision, keep the amount of your deposit to a maximum of 3% of the purchase price. If you're competing in a seller's market, your initial deposit should be larger than 1%. Most buyers are coming in with at least a 3% good faith initial deposit.
1: Well, why does that amount matter? I mean, 1% versus 3% if, if it's returnable um, within those contingency timeframes, then why why is it important how much it is?
0: Well, it matters specifically if there's what's known as liquidated damages that's a part of your agreement. In California, liquidated damages applies to the deposit up to 3% of the purchase price. If the deposit is greater than 3%, that portion above 3% is not affected by liquidated damages. So what what are liquidated damages? What does that mean? What it means in its simplest form is that it determines the agreed upon consequences of a breach of contract from the buyer as it relates to the, di- the disposition of the buyer's deposit. So the buyer, through liquidated damages, agrees up front to forfeit their deposit to the seller in the event the buyer fails to complete the sale After all the contingencies in favor of the buyer have been removed, liquidated damages also caps the amount of damages that can be claimed by the seller to the amount of the deposit up to 3% of the purchase price. Like I said a minute ago, the portion of the deposit above 3% is not affected by liquidated damages.
1: Okay, so that amount would be returned regardless. It's really the 3% that is up that is at risk.
0: The way it works with liquidated damages in our California agreements is 3% or less falls under liquidated damages. So that deposit would be subject to forfeiture to the seller if the buyer does not complete the sale after satisfying all their contingencies.
1: I've heard of some people increasing that earnest money amount to over 3% just to make their offer more favorable. Mm -hmm. Is that something you recommend? Do you think that has... Any value? Well, it
0: has value if it means getting the house because if you play by the 3% rule, but it really requires 10% to impress the seller, and that's what the seller wants. Unless you go to 10%, you might not get your offer accepted.
1: Right. Um, So let's talk about contingencies that can be included in a purchase offer, and why are they important to the buyer?
0: Well, let's start off with this. Contingencies are not required by law you can have a purchase agreement between both parties with no contingencies. Now, does that mean that it's prudent and should you do that? Well, in some cases, if you don't do that, especially in a hot seller's market, you're not going to get the house because you're competing with other buyers that are taking a risk and they're not applying any contingencies or incorporating them into their offer. But barring that contingencies can benefit a buyer. The typical contingencies you're going to find in most purchase agreements include the following. An appraisal contingency to confirm the purchase price value, the loan approval contingency to complete underwriting of the loan, the investigation of property contingency, which is more commonly known as an inspection contingency, approval of property disclosures, approval of homeowners association documents, if there are any the sale of another property contingency, and the liquidated damages provision after all contingencies are removed.
1: What are some considerations for homes that are occupied by the seller when making an offer?
0: Well, that would involve what's called a seller-in-possession occupancy agreement. And it's also known as a rent-back option or a license to occupy. Usually, a lender will allow up to 30 days past the closing date for the term of the rent-back option. Some lenders will allow up to 60 days. If you enter into a seller occupancy agreement, there are some considerations that you want to include in the purchase offer. So, the occupancy license fee, or rent, is usually based on the buyer's carrying cost on a prorated per diem basis, and that would include principal, interest, taxes, insurance, and HOA dues if there are any. So that number, that monthly number, is divided by 30 days. And so the day rent back option, you would just simply take that per diem rate, multiply it times seven, and that's typically what you would pay as a seller to cover the cost for staying in the property for that seven-day period. The rent is usually collected up front at close of escrow. It's paid uh, from the seller to the buyer. The the buyer keeps the seller's rent. You should always insist on a security deposit to ensure the condition of the home at the end of the rent-back term. And you want to collect the deposit at close of escrow and have the title company hold the deposit until the seller has moved out and you have verified the condition of the property and if it's if it checks out to your satisfaction then you can release the deposit money back to the seller if you're in a seller's market consider offering free rent to the seller to make your offer more competitive so escrow closes and they stay 30 days rent free Uh, that's a really powerful concession to make as a buyer to compel A seller to take your offer over somebody else's. So this gets back to asking the right questions before you formulate your offer. If you've gathered that information that the seller would benefit and appreciate the opportunity to stay after closing, then craft your offer accordingly. If you can fit it into your situation, I recommend that you do that.
1: And how do you formulate an offer price strategy? That usually is the most important question we get from buyers. What price should I offer? Right. And how do you decide on that?
0: Right. And so one of the best ways I can give you some data points to consider would be to ask your realtor to do some research. Take a look at recently sold homes that are similar in size, location, and condition to the home that you're considering. You're gonna look to discover what the current list to sold price ratio is. What does that mean? So if the property is listed at 500, but houses in this neighborhood are selling for 550, that means that the list to sales price ratio is higher than the asking price. So as an example, if the average sold price is 105% of the asking price, that gives you a clue as a buyer that if I come in at the asking price, it's probably not enough to be competitive to get the house and my offer accepted. So you could come in at 5% above. You could come in at 7%. So the idea here is that you, if you discover what the average list to sales price ratio is, and if you're in a seller's market, You're going to set your offer price at the high end of the range for the list to sales price ratio and maybe even come in above the average number because average doesn't get it done when the market is hot. You have to be above average in all ways. So if it's 5%, come in at 10% over, as an example. If you're in a buyer's market, you're going to find out, as an example, that the list to sales price ratio could be 95% instead of a hundred and five percent of the listing price in that case in a buyer's market when things are soft and values are declining you want to set your offer price at the low end of the range for the list to sales price ratio
1: so competing with other buyers for the same house in a seller's market can be really tough and that's what we're facing right now in the bay area here uh, what can a buyer do to compete on price Without offering more than is necessary above the asking price, what are some other things they can offer?
0: Well, that's really tricky. Uh, For a lot of people, you know, you're basically being asked to pick a number from thin air. Short of using some data points, using the list of sales price ratio research that you're doing, that's a jumping off point to kind of figure out where you need to end up or at least come out of the gate at. But what happens if you come to the table and... The highest competing offer is at the asking price, and you're coming in at 10% above the asking price. That's on 500,000. That's 50,000. Right on a hundred, on a million. That's 100,000 over. That's a lot of money that a buyer is offering unnecessarily. If you think about it, if the competing offer is at the asking price and you're coming in at 100000 over because you don't know what that price is of the competing offer, that's a, a very costly maneuver to get the house unnecessarily. So what's the solution? One strategy is to employ what's known as a relative offer price or a sharp bid. Um so what does that mean? It means that you have a provision in your purchase offer that states your price. So why don't we use $500,000 as an example? So my offer is $500,000, and I have a provision that says I agree to pay $5,000 over the highest competing offer up to a maximum price of five fifty. right? So what have you done? You've told the seller on the other side that my offer price is 500, but I'm willing to go as high as 550 and I'll go $5,000 above the highest competing offer if necessary. So what's the trigger for that? The trigger is a competing offer. So that assumes there's a competing offer to trigger it. If there's no competing offer, it doesn't trigger the price increase. It stays at 500. You might have saved yourself $50,000 because of this provision. If a competing offer comes in and it's at 510, now your price automatically escalates to 515 because you stated you would pay $5,000 over the highest competing offer up to a maximum of 550. You still saved because instead of just coming in at five fifty dollars and crossing your fingers, you're letting the price rope out slowly so you're not paying more than you need to to compete on price. It's also known as an escalator clause. So essentially, you can come in with confidence knowing that if you have to pay more to get the house and you don't want to lose it over not paying or offering a high enough price, then this escalator clause sets in an automatic price increase so that you can stay in the game over price and not lose it over $5,000 as an example.
1: So in that case, we do advise our buyers or, you know, we try to ask the listing agent if they're familiar with this and if they or even know how to use it and if they're willing to use it because it's not used that that frequently. So it is important, I think, to make sure that everybody understands it.
0: It's not very common, um, at least not in our marketplace. It actually was very common in the South Bay about 10 years ago in in our last boom market. Um, That's how houses were getting bought and sold. One of the things you must incorporate as a provision. If you're going to use the escalator clause or the relative bid or, or the sharp bid, whatever you want to call it, you must include this provision and that is that the seller must provide you with a copy of the highest competing purchase offer within one day of accepting your offer to confirm that the competing offer triggered your adjusted sales price. Does that make sense?
1: Right, that's an important part. All right, what if the seller wants an as-is sale? Sometimes you see that in the description of a home for sale, as-is is in quotes often, What does that mean and what can you do to prepare for that?
0: Well, let's start off by saying I haven't met a seller yet that doesn't want to sell their home as is. Can you think of anybody that gets excited about fixing things and making repairs and Mm -hmm. all that stuff? Nobody wants to do that if they have an option. In a seller's market, sellers have to do less to sell their homes and quite often, you're finding homes on the market where they haven't done any repairs. They might have provided inspection reports with recommended repairs, but it's basically as is. So, knowing that, if you're in a seller's market, you must be willing to accept the home in its present condition, or your offer might not be accepted by the seller. If that's the case, then I recommend that you come in with a provision That states any inspections performed by the buyer or for information purposes only there shall be no seller repair concessions so that provision will emphasize to a seller your intent and confirms the as is nature of your purchase agreement that usually is what a seller is hoping to find if they want an as-is sale
1: okay That makes sense. So let's say your purchase offer has been drafted and it's ready to deliver to the seller's realtor. What are some other things that go along with your offer? It's not just the purchase agreement on its own. There's other things that need to be included. What are those?
0: Right. So we recommend that you include signed copies of all available inspection reports and disclosures provided by the seller. Why is that? Because you want the seller to know that you've taken the time to read all of that valuable information that they've provided and that you understand what as-is means if it's an as-is sale. That, you, that you're coming into the transaction eyes wide open about the condition. The second thing is copies of recent bank statements as proof of your down payment and closing cost funds. It's absolutely critical that the seller and the realtor understands that the money needed to close the sale, apart from the bank loan, if there is one, is available to you and it's liquid in your bank account, meaning you don't have to sell anything, you don't have to do, it's there, it's ready to go if you need it. If you're getting down payment assistance in the form of a gift from a friend or a relative, it's imperative that you include a copy of the gift letter because that will tell the seller where the other part of the down payment is coming from in addition to your own resources. A loan pre-approval letter from your lender if you need a loan to purchase. And a cover letter from your realtor that highlights the key features of your offer and the benefits of your offer to the seller. This letter should be clear, concise, and professional. And then, equally as important, is a letter from you, the buyer, that confirms why this home is the best option for your needs. It should paint a picture for the seller of your appreciation of the home and taking over of the stewardship. Make your letter warm, personal, and friendly.
1: Those are some Good tips. Uh, I know that proof of funds seems to be regional, maybe because I we have come across some buyers who aren't familiar with that and they're not quite sure why that's needed and they feel that's an invasion of their privacy. But I think it is important to explain to people that this is what it's, it is expected in our area, and and this is sort of customary for us here in the Bay Area. Um so you really have to trust your realtor and make sure and understand that they they're, what they're saying is important regarding what's needed for an offer. What are some important items to put to have in the loan pre-approval letter?
0: With loan pre-approval letters, you want to make sure that it states that the income has been verified, they've verified your assets, your employment your credit history, and the source of your down payment. It's very important that that is actually stated in the letter because that tells the listing agent that you're more than just pre-qualified by a loan officer that has no authority to approve a loan. They just have an opinion that it might be approved. If it's missing that information that things have been verified, it's nothing more than a pre-qualification. You want to compel the seller to take your offer and prove to them that you've been pre-approved and that an underwriter has verified this information. Secondly, the the letter needs to be current, no more than 30 days old. And the reason for that is is that underwriting guidelines and requirements change frequently. And in the last seven months since COVID, underwriting guidelines have changed substantially, especially for self-employed people. It's critical that that letter be current and no more than 30 days old. The other thing you want on the letter is your loan officer's cell number and contact information. The reason for that is you want to give access to the listing agent, direct access to your lender. So if they have any questions about your financial qualifications, they can talk to the lender directly to get the confirmation they're looking for. Here's something you don't want to include in your offer, your loan approval letter. Do not include the offer price. And why <laughs> is that? I'll tell you why, because if you make an offer and, and your offer is 500,000 and now you're competing with other buyers for that same house and the seller really likes your offer, but it's not quite as high as some competing offer, the seller has no clue that you can afford or qualify to pay more for the house. So you might not be engaged to buy that house if you put a price in your offer letter. So my recommendation is leave the price out because then it's not important. What's important in the loan letter is how much of a loan can you qualify for? And ideally, the loan amount would be a lot higher than the loan amount you need to buy that house for 500000 as an example. So it's better to have the maximum loan amount stated in your offer letter than a price. Because you want to prove to a seller and the seller's agent that you're actually overqualified to buy the house. Who wants to sell a home to somebody and take their house off the market if the buyer is fairly qualified and stretching to get that loan. Nobody. It's too risky. So your loan letter should be something that inspires confidence that you are well qualified to get the loan, That it's no big deal. It's all been verified. You're not stretching. You're not buying above your means and you're solid state.
1: Okay. Good advice. When you're competing with other buyers in a competitive market, tell us about the strategies of eliminating contingencies from a purchase offer. Those contingencies we had talked about earlier.
0: Right, so the cliche or not, I guess it's not a cliche, it's just a a statement that says less is more when it comes to drafting contingencies in a competitive seller's market. If you have all cash, meaning you don't need to borrow money, it's all in your bank to pay for the house, there is no loan contingency, it's not relevant, and therefore the appraisal contingency is optional. You don't need to have an appraisal contingency. So if you're all cash, and some people are, you don't need those two contingencies. If you do need a loan to purchase, the bank is required to perform a formal appraisal to confirm the property valuation. You can omit the appraisal contingency, but only do so if you have the will and the ability to close the gap if the home does not appraise for the agreed upon purchase price. You can omit the loan contingency but only do that if you've been completely approved by your lender's underwriter, not pre-qualified by a loan officer. You need to be solid state to take a risk of eliminating your loan contingency and you need to be approved by an underwriter to do that safely.
1: So what are the risks of not having an inspection contingency? That, that's often considered one of the biggest contingencies. And does it mean that they can't do inspections?
0: The inspection contingency is actually somewhat of a misnomer. It's really an investigation of property condition. And I call it the kitchen sink clause, which means that it applies to not only things that are on-site, meaning the structure, the dwelling, the landscaping, the swimming pool, the garage, the shed, the fence, the land, whatever it is. An investigation of property contingency goes off-site as well as on-site. It allows the buyer to confirm everything that's important about the property beyond the physical inspection of the dwelling. It includes things like traffic patterns, school attendance areas, crime statistics, insurability, and other important facets affecting your intended use and enjoyment of the home. If the seller doesn't provide you with current inspection reports from qualified and reputable sources, The burden of discovery is placed on the buyer, and you must hire your own inspectors to complete your investigations of the property. It makes it risky to not have an inspection contingency when you have no information from the seller about the condition of the property. So you can have property inspections even if your purchase agreement does not have an inspection contingency. What that means is that You can inspect the home and the premises and do your investigations on and off-site, but without the contingency to protect your deposit. If you choose not to complete the sale because of something you discover that you can't live with, if you back out, your deposit money could be subject to forfeiture to the seller.
1: So another option is to do your investigations or your inspections in advance of submitting your offer. Tell us how a buyer would do that and what are the advantages of that?
0: You can hire an inspector to do a visual inspection of the premises before submitting your offer. If your offer is accepted, you can then have the inspector provide the written report to you. Another option is to schedule your inspections in advance of getting your offer accepted to occur after the offer has been accepted by the seller. If your offer isn't accepted, you can always cancel the inspections. So this demonstrates to the seller that you are committed to move through the escrow process quickly and that you're proactive. So doing a visual inspection ahead of submitting an offer will give you some confidence about the condition of the property And doing a walkthrough with a qualified inspector. So if there are no reports available and in order to compete and prevail in a competing Uh, competitive situation with other buyers, Um, before you decide to come in without your inspection contingency, you can do a pre-offer delivery inspection on your own.
1: Okay. You do have to get approval for that, obviously, of the seller's But oftentimes, they are up for that. So that's a good way to do it. What other offer terms could be modified to make your offer more attractive to a seller? So besides the contingencies that we talked about, what other things are there on the purchase agreement that could sweeten the deal?
0: Yeah. So ask your realtor to provide a list of fees that are customarily paid by the seller in a transaction. And you can then draft your offer relieving the seller of paying for these incidental transaction fees. So what are some of these incidental fees in a sale transaction that a seller might be paying for? Title insurance, escrow fees, home warranty policies, a county transfer tax, a city transfer tax, homeowners association transfer and document fees. So these are some of fees that all add up. You can make your offer more competitive. There's more to the best offer than the highest price. You can also be competitive on price, but you can also eliminate a lot of additional expenses of the seller by you paying for these fees. So there's no law requirement that one party pays for these fees or the other. It's all up for negotiation.
1: Right. Okay, so now the offer is ready to submit to the seller, Um, everything has been thought through, what should happen next? What are the next steps?
0: You want to ask your realtor to call or text the seller's realtor to confirm the receipt after sending the email with your offer. And why is that? Because sometimes the seller's realtor will not get the offer if it's emailed to them. It can land in a spam folder. It can be buried in their inbox with hundreds of other emails in a realtor's inbox. You don't want to make the assumption that just because you hit the send button to deliver your offer that it was received on the other end. And we've been involved many times, especially with multiple offers on one property, where there's an offer or two that gets lost in the shuffle somehow. It's incumbent upon the buyer's agent, not the seller's agent, to make sure that the seller received the offer. Yeah. So in the good old days, we used to get in our car with the (laughs) offer, we would drive to the seller's house, knock on the door, and if we couldn't find the listing agent, we would hand the offer to the seller and say, when you find your realtor, call me, my client wants to buy your house. That Hmm. doesn't happen very much anymore, if at all, but you could do it that way if you had to. That's just an extreme example your buyer's realtor is responsible for ensuring the receipt and delivery of the offer. It's not the other way around. So that's one thing that's absolutely critical. The next thing that you should do if you're getting a loan, you must have your lender, your loan officer, call the seller's realtor to build confidence in the strength of your financial qualifications. The call from the loan officer also demonstrates to the listing agent that they're accessible to the agent, and that there's open communication during the sale transaction. I know that we've been involved in sales where the buyer's realtor won't talk to the seller's realtor, which is often the case us, because they're not working for us. We can't get any information that we need. And when things start to get rocky with getting the loan approved, lack of communication and open lines of, of communication are Difficult to deal with.
1: Yeah, that's really important. It's really, I know we talked about the lender part of transactions and for buyers, but the lender needs to be available um, and um, easy to reach uh, throughout the transaction because they're a critical part of the team. What can the buyer expect after the offer is delivered to the seller? What happens? Do they just sit and wait? Um, well, yeah, they sit and How wait. long does it take to hear anything? <laughs>
0: it varies. Well, there's really only three possible outcomes once you deliver the offer to the seller. Your offer is either it's accepted, it's rejected, or you receive a counter-proposal or a counter-offer from the seller. Those are the three possible outcomes.
1: What if it's ignored? What if you don't hear anything?
0: That would be another form of rejection. (laughs) So the goal in a seller's market when competing with other buyers is to stay in the game, to stay at the table, if you will. If your offer is not accepted as written, the next best outcome is to receive a counteroffer. Have your realtor ask the seller's realtor to respond with a counteroffer if your offer is not accepted. Why would you do that? Doesn't it seem obvious? Well, sometimes... It's not that obvious. Um, You want to make it known to the other party that you're open to a response. If it's not an acceptance, then come back with the response from the seller and tell us some of the things they want to change about our offer. It could be anything besides price. It could be a rent-back option. It could be including the appliances. It could be who knows what. But you want, the, you want to engage, and you only can engage by getting people to go back and forth with counter proposals until you come to a meeting of the minds. Uh, now, the seller could respond to more than one offer at the same time. There's something called a seller multiple counter offer that is used in multiple offer competition. And it's different from a standard counteroffer in one very important way. The seller multiple counteroffer has a provision that tells the recipient that unless the seller signs that multiple counteroffer one more time, it's not a done deal. So that seller can negotiate with multiple buyers simultaneously with different counteroffers to each party. And if they all come back to the seller before they expire and they're all accepted, the seller still hasn't sold the house until the seller decides to sign one of those multiple-counter offers to ratify it. So, if you should get a multiple-counter offer and you're competing with other offers, use that as an opportunity to improve your offer. Don't just merely accept the seller's multiple-counter offer. Because why? Because that's what all the other buyers are going to do. So if you put yourself in the seller's shoes for a minute, if All six of those multiple counter offers come back signed. The seller still has to decide which buyer is the best buyer. Those multiple counter offers are designed to level the playing field. So once the playing field is now level, which offer stands out? None of them do because they're all the same now. They've been adjusted to be the same. So if you want your offer to stand out, You need to raise the ante. Think of this as a poker game. You get a seller multiple counter offer. That's good news. The good news is is you're still at the table competing and engaging. You weren't dismissed out of hand because your offer was not good enough. When you get the multiple counter offer, it's your opportunity to raise the stakes. Quite frequently, we have won multiple offer competitions because our buyer sent a counter-proposal back to the seller, improving their offer terms. And that could be a rent back option, free rent, it could be contingency removals, it could be increasing the price, it could be all of the above. But the key here is you see it as an opportunity to prevail over the other buyers. Most competing buyers are gonna miss this critical strategy.
1: Yeah, it's quite nerve-wracking for buyers to wait after they submit an offer and they don't know what's going to happen. Are they going to get a counter offer back, a multiple counter offer back? And oftentimes they don't hear anything. Um, or a different another offer is accepted and they sometimes wonder, "Well, why didn't I get a counter offer? Why wasn't I included?" And the answer always is that we, we really don't know. We have no idea of knowing how sellers choose offers it can be many different for many different reasons that we'll never know Um, and in the end you just unfortunately the buyer has to accept that 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 they were not picked
0: well that's a very good thing to bring to the table here in this discussion because we're not selling commercial real estate we're not selling investment properties we're talking about residential real estate sales and selling people's homes and We've seen sellers take an offer that isn't the highest offer. We've seen sellers take offers that are lowest, lower than the higher offer because they had an opportunity to bond with the buyer. Remember at the beginning of the podcast, find a way to meet the seller and or the seller's agent. It can carry a lot of weight when it comes down to the seller making a decision. When everything else is equal, Sometimes, in many cases, they gravitate to the buyer that they bonded with. And if you haven't had the opportunity or made the effort to bond with the seller or their agent, it could be the deciding factor.
1: Yeah, it's true. And oftentimes, we never really know what the outcome is and how the choice was made. And that can be frustrating. Um, what can a buyer do if the seller accepts another competing offer? Is there anything left to be done? Or is that the end of the road?
0: Not necessarily. There's one thing I know about real estate, not all transactions close. Okay, so what I mean by that is, so now you just came out of a multiple offer competition, the stakes are high, the emotions are high, the primary buyer that was accepted, they won the battle, all right? But that doesn't mean they're not going to wake up the next day and realize that they over compromised, they overpaid, they overbid, they over this, they over that and then they're over the house, and then it goes back on the market. That's not good for the seller at all. So ask your realtor if your offer is not accepted to respond with a backup offer. What is a backup offer? If you have an accepted backup offer, it's a provision. It's an amendment, or it's actually an addendum to the contract. And what it says is that You, the secondary buyer, now have first right of refusal to buy the property subject to the failure of the primary buyer, the offer that was accepted. So the good news is is that it costs you nothing to have a backup offer accepted, and it gives you the ability to continue to look for other homes while you're waiting for the notice that you now are in a primary position because the first buyer failed to perform. If you happen to find another house before you're put in that primary position, you can cancel without cost your backup offer and move on to the house that you found, the other house that you want to buy. So there's no cost to you and basically you're putting a marker on a house and it could come through with you while you're trying to find another option. So we always recommend backup offers for our clients if they're so inclined to do so and if the seller is willing to accept the backup offer.
1: Right. And it's important to point out that the buyer can cancel their backup offer anytime before the original um, agreement falls apart. So
0: Right. And uh, then all timeframes for your contract performance do not start until your backup offer has been put into a primary position so in other words you're not doing inspections you're not even putting your deposit in escrow in most cases basically you're sitting there idling waiting for the notice to be into a primary position and you've got all the options on your side
1: yeah it's a good way to go sometimes well to all our listeners this concludes this episode thank you for joining us again We hope you enjoy our real estate pro tips and strategies and we encourage you to share our podcast with anyone you know who's looking to buy or sell a home. Call or text us at 925-297-5335 to reach us with your questions or referrals. You can find more pro tips and strategies at 5starrealestateteam.podbean.com. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this podcast. We hope you enjoy our real estate pro tips and strategies, and we encourage you to share our podcast with anyone you know who is looking to buy or sell a home. Be sure to like and subscribe, and if you're watching on YouTube, feel free to ring the bell next to the subscribe button so you won't miss a single episode. Thank you to our producer, Sam Lubman, with Painless Podcasts for making this podcast happen. I'm Leslie Whitney with Pete Sabine, and we are the Five Star Real Estate Team.
0: Join us for our next episode of Real Estate Pro Tips and Strategies. Call or text 952975335 to reach us with your questions and referrals, or send an email to info at 5starrealestatepro.com.